me pray one more time. Lord, we pray that you would work through the preaching of your word. Unite us around the cross of Christ and the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus and the ascended king. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our culture, we really prize the idea of unity. Uh, Think about all the calls for unity that you've seen in the last several years. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that uh, had one political party that it said, united over divided. Well, a good portion of Americans would say amen to this bumper sticker, but another portion of Americans would not be able to say that. And if there was the opposite party for uh, a different candidate, you could say the same thing. Each side and all that's in between have differing views on so many issues that a call to unite will inevitably disunite some. So think about the the largest international organization in the world, the United Nations. Consider the various countries in the UN. You have countries like France, Canada, Sweden. There's probably a lot of unity in in those countries with some substantial, substantial differences, but also a lot of unifying factors. But also in the United Nations, you have China, Saudi Arabia, Iran. How much can they really unite around with such differing perspectives on how countries should be run? You see the word united in so many places, the United States of America, the United Kingdom, the United Arab Emirates, the United Methodist Church. All these organizations have had fractions over time or... They're in constant threat of dividing. It's not that they've all failed in their call for unity, though some have. It's that their unity can only go so far before being divided. But God has made it clear. There is one organization which is called to have unity. And we can have an optimistic outlook of its unity because this one organization The church of Jesus Christ shares the same head, Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians, we see a call to maintain unity in the spirit or unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our text is is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. You can find that in your pew Bible in front of you or on the mobile device or hard copy of God's word that you brought with you. Ephesians 4, chapter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let me read that. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One road, I have one main charge for you this morning. Let's maintain the unity of the spirits in the bond of peace. 
Warnell Road Baptist Church. Let's maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's taken from verse 3, which we'll cover in a second. But just a quick note on that before we get to our, our three points. Sin produces chaos. Sin produces disorder. Sin produces anarchy in the world and also anarchy in the heart. Sin says, let's run from your good, loving, heavenly father, the creator of all that you see. And sin has an inward bent. And that inward bent on ourselves, on us, creates chaos in our hearts, in our relationships, and in nations. So Paul is calling us, dear church, God is calling us through the authoritative word of the apostle to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we're going to look at it in three parts. Part one, we have one calling. Part two, we have one cross. Part three, we have one, let me cheat here, one body. There we go. We have one calling. One cross and one body. Look at verse 1, the, the one calling that we all have and all share. We're just now getting to a big transition into the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3 have one imperative. That is one command. And guess what that command is? It's a command to remember. But now in chapters 4 to 6, there are 41 imperatives. 41 imperatives, 41 commands. There's just one in the first half. The first command is just that we see here is an urging to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul is reminding them, you've been called. You've heard the gospel. You've received it by faith. And you've turned from sin to Christ. This calling language is, is found throughout the New Testament. And it's usually meant in this kind of way. You were dead and now God's calling you out of death and into life. You were in darkness and now God's calling you out of darkness into the light. And Paul says, because you are now objectively spiritually alive and because you now are children of the light, walk like it. Walk like you are calling. Now, what an interesting way to get someone to do what you want them to do. You see, he's anchoring all this urging, all this imploring into these spiritual realities. The commands that are following in chapters 4, 5, and 6, they only make sense in light of what preceded it in chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is not a book of, of do's and don'ts. It's, it's a book of what has been done. And because these things are true, therefore live like this. It's compelling. It's holding up something beautiful about redemption, about adoption. And then God is saying, therefore, because these things have happened to you, because these are spiritual realities, therefore, walk like this. Ephesians is a marvelous book. If you haven't read it in a while, let me encourage you after service to go home and read chapters 1 to 3 especially. But just to give you a taste, chapter 1 verses 7 to 8 says this about those of us who are in Christ, it says that in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
God has been rich toward us, dear Christian. He's purchased us by his blood. He's lavished us with rich grace in his wisdom and insight. You see, though, Paul says, therefore, that's just the first word there. And then he implores them. He reminds them of the calling that they've been called to. And then he has that word. Look in verse one. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy manner is the way we should walk. So following Jesus is worthwhile. That's what Paul is trying to say. He's reminding them he's in prison. He's saying following Jesus is worthwhile because Jesus, as he explained in chapters 1 to 3, is of inexhaustible worth. His sacrifice is incomparable. His spiritual blessings are of incalculable worth. Uh, How many of you, when you were in high school, maybe some of you in college, you had one of those huge calculators like a TI-89? Kids, when, when your parents were in high school or college, maybe middle school, I don't know how old people are these days, uh, we had to have these huge rectangles. Think of an iPhone, but five times bigger. And we had to bring them and purchase the cost. And they cost as much as an iPhone, almost. You had to bring them to school and it would have a screen. And I remember um, if I wasn't playing a game on my calculator, like Worm or something like that, I would just see how big I could get the numbers sometimes. So kids, just think about the worth of Jesus, how, much, how, how big Jesus is. The biggest number you can get on one of those calculators starts with a nine and then has nine, 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 probably 12 nines. Trillions upon trillions or zillions of worth. You can't calculate the worth of Jesus. So Paul's trying to communicate. You can't fathom how valuable Jesus is. And Jesus says this about himself and about giving up your life for the kingdom of God. He says in Matthew 13, 44 to 46, he gives two parables. They're very brief and the point is very clear. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field this man finds his treasure in a field he sells everything he covers it up and he purchases that field and then again jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Uh, Friends, Jesus is saying that following him is worthwhile. It is a worthy calling to forsake yourself, your own desires, your own ambitions, and submit them all to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Last week in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, Paul showed us that the way to glorify God is to dwell on, to increase in the knowledge of Christ's love for you. It's not the only way to bring glory to God is to dwell on Christ's love for you, but it's of first importance to know deeply his measureless love for you. 
If you know his measureless love for you, and as we said last week, you're going to know it in this life. You're going to increase in your knowledge in this life. And it's like taking a tape, tape measure that never runs out and goes on and on and on into eternity. Ex- the experiential knowledge of Christ's love for you. Once you see how much he loves you, your idea of how rich and how worthwhile it is to follow him increases. And you continue throughout this life to give your entire heart to him, which leads to Christ being glorified. The more you know Christ's love for you, the more you love Christ and the more you glorify God. That's God's plan of redemption, his wise plan of redemption. So basically, Paul's saying here in verse 1, I therefore, in light of all the good doctrine I've given you, in light of all those things, in light of redemption and adoption, and in light of your inheritance, and in light of the never-ending love of Christ for you, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he reminds us, doesn't he, that walking in a manner worthy of the gospel can be costly in this world. He's already told us he's a prisoner. And then he says it again right there. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. He said that in three one. He's reminding us that he himself is doing the very thing he's imploring us to do. He is walking in a manner worthy of the calling. And friends, walking in a manner worthy of the calling, it can lead you into a dark, cold jail cell. Or if you live in Afghanistan, walking in a manner worthy of your calling can lead you to a cave where you're hiding from the Taliban that is strategically trying to kill you. Walking worthy means taking up your cross and following Christ. It means that if your boss at work tries to get you to do something unethical against God's word, you count it worthy to follow Jesus. Even if it means not getting that promotion or even if it means losing your job. Church, we're being urged, entreated, implored to walk in a way that can lead to imprisonment, distress, hardship, trials, and so forth. And the way to do this, the way isn't just to say, I must gird up my loins and do this. The way to do this is to start with good doctrine. Pray that that doctrine becomes alive in your heart. Then you will be more devoted to Jesus and then deeds will follow. So doctrine, divine action, devotion, deeds. That's the pattern we have here in Ephesians. We all have the same calling. We've all are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We've all in this church been called out of darkness, the the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. From darkness to light, from death to life. We all, just like the baptism pictured, have had that same spiritual experience if you're in Christ. And so Paul is saying, remember what you've been called from and remember what you've been called to. Secondly, we see that in order to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, one road, know that we have one cross. Know that we have one cross. Verses two to three. Let me read that again. And as I read it, I'm going to substitute some words that might be helpful for us to understand 
other ways to, to interpret the word. So he says, with all humility or lowliness and gentleness or meekness, with patience or long suffering, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. So there we have verse three. That's what Paul's mainly getting at here. He's urging the Ephesian church. God is urging us today, dear church, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But he gives two specific ways in verse two. First, he says, with humility. And the patience that he's getting at springs from, or sorry, and the gentleness he's getting at springs from this humility. Humility could be translated uh, lowliness or humility of mind. It's a disposition of the mind that is usually lowered by something greater. So it, it's not self-abasement. I don't know how many of you are in a habit of just speaking down to yourself. Like you fool, you idiot. That's not biblical humility. It's not uh, good to call yourself a no for good, nothing, nobody. Or the Parkers are here. Their, their son used to have a, a name, nickname, Rascal. You don't talk down to yourself. Then you, you silly rascal, stop it. I actually have that in my notes. Tell Tyler that. That's Lindsay's brother, Tyler. Nicknamed Rascal for some reason. I don't know why. It's just another manifestation of pride when you have these self-abasing thoughts and talk to yourself. Because you know what? The focus is on who? The focus is on you. So, so don't get confused, brother and sister. Biblical humility is not speaking down to yourself in that kind of way. Biblical humility, it's not haughty pride. And it's not self-abasing thoughts. They're both pride. One's just more sneaky than the other. In Christianity, biblical humility is seeing yourself at the foot of the cross. It's seeing the greatness of Jesus and losing sight of yourself in the light of his greatness. It's seeing Jesus as the, the king of heaven and the king of the cross. You see how God has set it up for us to walk in humility? Jesus is so great. He's the king of kings. He's become so low. He's condescended so low. He took on flesh and became the king killed on a cross. A biblical humility looks like Isaiah who says in that great throne room in Isaiah 6 says, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Biblical humility looks like the soldier at the foot of the cross, staring at Jesus crucified, seeing the nails in his hands and feet, the crown of thorns on his head. And Mark records in his gospel that the soldier seeing the way Jesus breathed his last breath. This man who killed Jesus says, truly this man was a son of God. Biblical humility stares at the cross and at Jesus on the throne. It's a lowness of mind. And then it produces this gentleness, this meekness springboards from it. Gentleness comes from this disposition of the mind. That you're not as good as you think you are. That Jesus is better. 
Humility produces the external fruit of gentleness. One theologian, Benjamin Merkel, defines this gentleness which springs forth from this humility as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's interesting because you would think that would be the definition of humility, wouldn't you? But he's talking about gentleness here. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. This is a way of dealing with other people, this gentleness. Considering their needs as more important than your own. You see, in meekness, there's a sense of self-forgetfulness. You're just not thinking about yourself much because your mind is bent towards serving other people. And a great way to serve other people when you're speaking to them is is being meek and gentle with them. Meek people are are usually good listeners. Meek people are, are usually good question askers. Because in a conversation... They're less absorbed with themselves and they're thinking, I want to bless this person. How can I bless them? Meekness, however, does not mean that you lack boldness. I think when we describe meek people or gentle people, I think we kind of have it off a little bit. In my limited experience, when I think of someone who's gentle, I quickly think of someone who's merely quiet and shy And not abrasive. But meekness is much more than that. Now we can look at Matthew 11, 28 to 30 as a a great place to see the meekness of Jesus. Where he says, to come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Or I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So is Jesus meek and gentle? Yes. But is Jesus bold? Well, of course he is. Jesus is the one who said, I came not to bring peace to the earth, but I've come to bring a sword. I've come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And Jesus is also the one out of a zeal for his father's house. He was bold enough to go into the temple and to turn over tables. So I don't know about you, I just had to recalibrate my understanding of what it meant to be gentle. Then he says in verse 2, he says with patience. Or long-suffering. Patience in relationships is enduring with someone. Making room for the shortcomings and weaknesses of others. Patience or long-suffering in relationships is enduring with someone, making room for their shortcomings and their weaknesses. All the while knowing you have your own shortcomings, your own weaknesses, your own specks in your eye, or maybe even logs in your own eye. And friends, all this is done in love. All this is done in love, as you see there in verse 2. Bear with one another, endure with one another in love. I entreat you, be unified, one on a Baptist church. Be long-suffering with one another. 
in love. Look back at verse 17 of chapter 3. He says that he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Love is so important for Christian unity. Without loving one another, there's no gospel witness. And you can't love one another if you don't understand the love of Christ for you individually and for your brother and sister Christian. Jesus says in John chapter 13, in fact, that the world is going to know that you are my disciples by what? The world is going to be able to see that you follow me by what? He doesn't say your love for me, though that would be true, but he says your love for one another. This is so important for the plan of redemption, for the plan of reaching the nations for Jesus. Is for those outside the church, non-Christians, to look at the church and say, look how much they love each other. What's up with that? That's unique. That's odd. And that's part of David's testimony. It's part of Andrew's testimony. You see, you can't understand the command to endure with one another in love if you don't understand what chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about. This love springboards from Christ's love for us. And Paul is simply saying in this book that we all have one cross. I think that's why he starts out with this humility, this lowliness of mind. It all starts with the idea that Philippians 2 gets that, that we think about other people's interests before our own. And we follow in the pattern of our dear Savior who endured a death. What kind of death? A shameful death on the cross. So we all have the same cross. We all stand at the foot of the cross together. So the moment you start thinking you are better than one of your other church members, the moment you start saying, oh yeah, I know I have sin. Oh yeah, I get total depravity. But whoa, look at their sin. They really struggle with sin. Friends, put yourself where that soldier was, where the centurion was, at the foot of the cross. And look to your left and look to your right. At the foot of the cross humbles all of us. So we don't have the idea of holier than now. But we have the idea of wanting to point a brother or sister who is in sin to look at Jesus. And sometimes saying, actually, you are as sinful as you, as Jesus says you are. Actually, don't be so surprised that you have blinders on. Friends, we all have blinders. We all are in need of being humbled at the foot of the cross. If you are are with us and you are not yet a Christian, the Bible is simply proclaiming this message. That Jesus came for sinners. Who is a sinner? All of us. How many of us are righteous? No, not one of us are righteous. All of us are depraved. All of us are participating in the rebellion against God. And in God's plan of redemption, he, he, he set apart a certain people, a certain nation. He called them Israel. And in God's plan, the nations, the peoples, were supposed to look at the nation of Israel and say, Oh, 
That's what it looks like to follow God, to follow the one true God. But Israel disobeyed God's laws. And in fact, instead of a blessing to the nations, they became a stumbling block to the nations. So when people look to Israel, they, for the most part of their history, they didn't say, wow, look at their God. And then God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who in a sense became the new Israel. And Jesus upheld the law, upheld the moral standard of God. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned. And then he was killed on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. And then he rose from the dead, showing that he really is God. And his word says that all that come, God's word says that all who come to him in faith and repentance, just as Andrew and David testified to this morning, will have life and have it abundantly. On this, in this world and also in the world to come. And now, from Israel to Jesus, God is establishing his church. A people who are slowly being conformed to the image of Christ. And so, you might get to know some of us in deep ways. You might be impressed for a while. But in the end, we're going to disappoint you because we, we too will sin. But we're a lot better than we used to be. Amen, Christian? So if you are not yet a Christian, let me encourage you to examine the scriptures. This unifying theme that man is, man is sinful, man is a sinner, that God will judge sinners. But Christ took that judgment for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him for salvation. Let me just encourage you. If you have not yet responded by faith to that message, let me encourage you to do that today. You've seen a baptism, you're hearing the word preached. You hear all these people singing their songs, not doing a nice Sunday brunch, but, but giving up their time to come here. We do it because we really think that Jesus rose from the dead. And we want you to believe that same message. It will alter your life in this world and more importantly for eternity. One road, when you are enduring with one another through love, and if you've been in this church for more than a year, you've probably endured with a brother or sister to a degree in love. You've long suffered. And I'd like to say that the more you lean into this church, the more you'll see God's blessings in people's lives, but also the more you'll see people's sin struggles. So just a couple of encouragements to you. Don't be surprised that you're leaning in, you're serving the church, and all of a sudden, someone who you thought really high of sins against you. That's going to happen. It will happen. Come join our church. And you will be hurt by that. But you'll be less hurt, less offended, if you understand what the Bible really says about each one of us. That we've all fallen short of the glory of God. In your love and your desire to help someone, let me, be, let me encourage you to approach people. Approach them with humility, knowing that you might have a log or a speck in your own eyes, Jesus talks about. Approach them with curiosity about their own heart, knowing that you might not see the whole thing. There might be a ton of things going on. You might hear half the story, but approach people with curiosity, not with suspicion. Ask questions about their hearts. And friends, the more you 
encourage someone in your daily interactions, the easier it is for someone to receive questions when you are coming up to them and trying to encourage them or reprove them in a hard way. So don't have no encouragement with someone. And all of a sudden you see someone in someone's life and you say, oh, it's probably my duty to go confront that person. I mean, you can't do that. I'm not giving laws here. I'm just saying in wisdom, just make it your daily practice to encourage people in this church. You see something glorious, a spiritual blessing in someone's life. Say it out loud. Say so. Tell them. And then when times, more difficult times come around, it's going to be easy to receive because that person is going to be convinced that this person, that you care for them and that you love them. Have a childlike curiosity. Be inquisitive when you approach someone. But also ask yourself, each one of you, one word, are you approachable? Do you make it hard for people to approach you? It's a good question to ask. As Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's all stand at foot across together, Warner Road. Looking to the left, looking to the right. Not being haughty, but carrying the lowliness of Jesus in our hearts. There are harmful effects of disunity among Christians. I was speaking to a pastor friend this past week. They're going through a very difficult situation in his church. And he just rattled off four things that, um, four things he's discouraged by in his church right now because of some members causing division. He says that division amongst professing Christians speaks lies of the gospel. Secondly, it tells the demonic forces that they've won. Think about that. It tells the demonic forces that they've won. Read the first part of Ephesians or stay with us till we get to chapter 6 to understand more about that. Thirdly, it confuses new believers. New believers come to faith. They look at the corporate witness and all of a sudden they're met with this puzzling disunity. And they should be puzzled by it. Fourthly, it erodes the witness of the church. It erodes the witness of the church. Friends, that's why Paul in his letter to the Philippians is entreating these two women who have labored side by side with him in the gospel, Yodi and Syntyche. Paul loves this church. They've been a faithful church, the church of Philippi. But there's one threat to their corporate witness. These two women who have some kind of disagreement with each other and seemingly are, are perhaps causing some kind of division within the church. And Paul appeals to them as women whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's how serious it is. Almost like, I don't know all your division, but I implore you, oh women, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Agree in the Lord. Let us be aware of the enemy's schemes to divide our church. Now, friends, that's why we have the Peacemakers Pledge. We have 20 or so people that are going to become members of our church, uh, Lord willing, in, um, next week. We're going to vote on them. 
And we make them all read the Peacemaker's Pledge. You can find it uh, if you want a copy of it. I have a copy here. Ask me or ask Philip. We can get you a copy. If you've become a member of One Row, we've encouraged you to read this and to commit to these following four steps or following four ideas of biblical conflict. One is know that biblical conflict can be a way to glorify God. Secondly, get the log out of your own eye. Thirdly, gently restore a brother or sister. And fourthly, go and be reconciled to them. This is so important for the unity of our church and our corporate witness. If you've been a member of World Road for the last six months, you know that in many ways that corporate unity has been under threat. I wonder if you've given thanks to the Evans families and the Open Houses families for the way that they've endured and given of their time and given of their family and even their jobs in order to help preserve the unity of this church. You're not going to know all that they did for you, but let me encourage you to find Andrew Evans and Jessica Evans and Matt Obenhouse and Rachel Obenhouse and just say thank you for holding the scriptures as key to understanding what is divisive and what is not. Friends, doctrine leads to devotion, which leads to these deeds. If we forget that Jesus Christ is crucified and he crucified, he was dead, he became crucified for me and for you, we will not have biblical unity. Thirdly and lastly, Paul is saying, remember that we have one body. We have one body. We are one body. And he says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, You remember that song? I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I was hanging out with some guys the other day. It was, it's either mercy me or casting crowns. If we are the body, why on is arms reaching? I don't know. The, the point of it is evangelistic, right? It's saying, if we're the body, how come we're not serving the world better? Now, that's a true thing, right? That's true. But if you look at the body imagery in scripture, it's not getting at evangelism, at least first. The song is a good song. It's a fine song. But when Paul, when the apostle is talking about the body, he's talking about corporate unity. It's a reminder of our togetherness and what we have in common. And that's why he starts out here. Though the one body aspect of Christianity is probably one of the least important things here. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Lord Jesus. We have belief that leads to uh, redemption. We have our baptism which says that we are, on, we are now with Jesus and we have the one God and Father of all. But yet he starts out with body and then he anchors it in all these wonderful things that we have in common. These glorious truths. He's grounding his call to a spirit of unity in oneness. And he's been doing that throughout Ephesians. So as we close here, let me just go through uh, um, some of the passages in Ephesians which bring about this oneness. Speak to it. Ephesians 2.16, the the one body is mentioned here. He says that, that the Lord might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says, remember that whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're, whether you're from Saudi Arabia, whether you're from China, whether you're from America, whether you're from South America, wherever you're from, if you're under the Lord Jesus Christ, you are now part of one body. And he says, he, he says that we all have one spirit. And Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says, you too. He says, you Gentiles and you too, or you Jews, you too Gentiles are sealed in the one spirit. And then he says, you all have one hope. Going back to 118, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you to. What are the riches of his glorious Inheritance in the saints. We all have one Lord. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have the same faith. Verse 9 of chapter 1. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. We all believe that. And one baptism. Friends. Paul is trying to say something very clear here. When you feel like you can't long suffer with each other anymore, remember the oneness you have in Christ. Remember that you've all been adopted by the same Heavenly Father as a plan for the fullness of time from before the foundations of the world. So let's be careful. When we are being tempted with division in our heart, it always starts in our heart. A little seed of doubt, a little seed of being upset with someone a little seed of perceived offense, whether real or just perceived. Friends, don't lead with desires. Trust in God's way to deal with conflict that he's outlined in Matthew 18, in Titus chapter 3, in 1 Timothy 5. And remember, you are loved by Christ and you are loved by the saints here at Warnell. In conclusion, don't undermine the work of Satan To try to destroy this unity. Don't undermine the ways that the world slowly creeps into our mind and our ways to deal with conflict. And friends, don't undermine your power of your own sinful flesh to cause division in this church. May God be glorified in our church. And along with our church covenant, as the second line says, may we all be committed to working and praying for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It all starts out by us saying what we're about to sing in our next song. All I have is Christ. When we can corporately sing together, all I have is Christ, that paves the way for this biblical humility which leads to this Christ-centered unity.